Welcome to Leadership Bites with myself, your host, Guy Bloom. This is a leadership podcast where I have conversations with colleagues, I chat with guests, and sometimes they'll be just me talking. You can connect with me at livingbrave.com, and when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and please tell everyone. David, absolutely excited and privileged to have you on this episode of Leadership Bites. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, Guy. And I just wonder if you could share one or two poignant moments from your career that go, those definitely helped me learn about myself or, or to develop and move forward. I'd love to hear a few of those. Yeah, so one, one of the critical moments for me was shortly after I took over as the captain of the nuclear-powered submarine USS Santa Fe, and I'd come up through the Navy system and I was being promoted on the strength of my ability to tell people what to do and get them to do it and make good decisions. And I was deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in that paradigm of leadership, leaders and followers, management and workers. How, other, how else could it possibly be? Uh, and so I show up on the USS Santa Fe. Now, I'd spent a year uh, training to take over a different submarine, which was a different kind of submarine. And what happened was the Santa Fe wasn't doing well. It was the worst performing submarine in the, in the Navy and the, had the worst morale. And the captain, to his credit, in my mind, said, I'm not the person for this. I resign a year early. So the Navy hadn't done the normal, they hadn't sequenced someone in to, to come replace him. So at very short notice, two weeks notice, they told me, hey, you're not going to go where you thought you're going to go to the Santa Fe, different kind of submarine. Oh, by the way, it's the worst performing submarine and it has the worst morale and you don't know the ship. But other than that, you should be fine. <laughs> Crack on. And and so here's, here's the picture of the, the ceremony. Uh, but the reality was I looked like this. Inside, I, I was really quite nervous, anxious, and concerned. But you, don't really, you can't really show that. I mean, you're a submarine commander. You don't want to be vulnerable. And I gave an order very early on that couldn't be done. It was a very simple thing. It was about shifting into the second gear on an engine that only had one gear. And when the Navy went to the newest ship, they the, the Navy's constantly simplifying the machinery because simpler machinery, fewer moving parts, brakes less, costs less, cheaper to maintain, more reliable. So uh, you want to make it exactly as, you want to get as simple as you can. And uh, with the Santa Fe being one of the newest ships, ship I'd never been on, kind I'd never been on before, that this, this motor now had uh, one speed, but on all the older ships was two speed motor. Anyway, I, um, I suggested going to second gear on this one speed motor and it came to light, hey, can't do it, blah, blah, blah. And nothing really happened. But the thing that really shocked me and rocked me back on my heels was the fact that the officer ordered it. And when I asked him if he knew about it, he said, yes. And I said, well, why did you order it? Because you told me to. And in, yeah. Now, if you're listening to this and say, oh, that would only happen in the military. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I can list a hundred corporations 
Volkswagen, Wells Fargo, Blockbuster, wherever, whatever, where people just do what they're told. I mean, it is the number one behavior in a corporation that get you advanced. Attach yourself to someone else and do what do what they want you to do. And it's designed that way. The organization is designed that way. We do say, we do sprinkle fairy toss and say, oh, but I really want you to think. But the fundamental organizational design is for compliance and conformity, not for thinking. And we, we can tamper with the edges, but it doesn't really make a fundamental difference. My thought was, oh, I need to give better orders. I got to make better decisions. This had always been my thought in the past. But on the Santa Fe, it was because it was a brand new ship that was unfamiliar to me. I was like, well, how am I possibly going to learn everything before I kill everybody? There's no way. So the problem wasn't I gave a bad order. The problem was I was the one giving orders. And this was my Damascene moment where I realized all my leadership training, all of it, and, and I would dare say basically all leadership training on the planet, 90% of it, is about telling people what to do and getting them to do it and making good decisions. And it's not helpful. It was, the, it was the winning formula for the industrial revolution, but it's not the winning formula for thinking organizations because it's not about thinking. We need to optimize the organization, not for doing, but for thinking. And we need to balance it with doing. So we need doing and thinking. But right now, most organizations are 99% doing, 1% thinking. Now, there's some, a few people at the top. We reserve those spots. Those are the thinking spots, and they make decisions and tell everyone else what to do. So there's two problems for this. Well, number one, we're not activating the thinking of many people in the organization. So we're missing out on what they, what they know. It's bad for the organization, but it's also horrible for them for, as human beings just to show up to work and just be a cog in the machine. Uh, and so that's number one. Number two, it's fundamentally coercive because we separate the people who are making the decisions from the people who are doing the work. The people who are doing the work are, are not making decisions about the work. Somebody else is making decisions about the work. And so everybody in every level of hierarchy has two problems. Number one, they're trying to control somebody else and they're being controlled by their boss. Both of those things are tremendous sources of stress. Because you can't control somebody else. So you're trying to control something you fundamentally cannot control. And you, in turn, are being controlled, which also doesn't feel good. And we have studies here in the United States that show the cost of this stress and the, the relationship to toxic workplaces is over $200 billion a year and was the fifth leading cause of death. This is pre-COVID. Fifth leading cause. Fifth leading cause of death in the United States is toxic workplaces. Why? Because it's fundamentally designed to be stress-inducing. And so we don't, we can't just tinker on the edges with this approach. What we need to do is let the people who are doing the work make, make as many fundamental decisions about the work as possible. And it, and it comes down to the, it's baked into our language. That's the problem. You can say whatever you, you can, you can dream up and write policies about whatever you want. But if you show up and you run a meeting the same way you ran the meeting two years ago, the same way you ran that your, your parents ran a meeting that the CEO 10 years ago ran, 
You're not changed. Nothing's changed. I've also become quite alert, I think, to another thing is that people need to be developed in themselves as much as they do in the role. Primarily, because what I also see is that people put themselves into a submissive state, sometimes even if they're being asked not to. And what I mean by that is the market shifts, COVID happens, et cetera, whatever it is, and it becomes harder to get a job out there. They've got a mortgage, they've got a second kid on the way, whatever it is. And even if they've got the recognized guru of leadership in, in the organization, their fear manifests in a submissive state and because they're fearful of losing job and, and all those kind of things. And one of the things I'm, I'm highly alert to is that even if you are actually a really skilled leader, there is something about the organization has to be more than the individual. I had Gary Ridge on the podcast, who's the uh, MD of uh, WD40. And he talks you know, very much about we're a tribe and we're coaches and not managers and, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm, I'm just super alert that even when a company tries its best and tries really hard, there are still times when people do that to themselves because of their own fear. And I, I just wonder if you observe that where I'm giving you permission and yet you're still not stepping up and what you might do to bridge that gap, because it's not technically what you're doing. It's the reaction they're having to you. And it's an interesting conversation piece. I guess. Yeah. So uh, the way we think about it is the leader's job is to create the environment where it's safe for people to participate it, mm. being bold. And if you're looking for bold behavior, it needs to come from a place of safety, not from a place of fear. It, it, you can you can goad people and scare them into once jumping, but then they age, they all jump in different directions. It's not organized and it, and it doesn't keep working. It doesn't get everyone's best thinking. So leaders say, oh, my job is to make it as safe as possible. The, the, if, you, if you're the employee, the employee's job is no matter how safe the environment feels, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to share what I think. I'm going to speak up and I see things differently. Now you say, oh, people say, oh, it's up to you to make a decision. Uh, I think these people, they're a little bit deluding themselves and they're blaming the, the team when they really haven't made it easy to, to, for the team to speak up. They're, I'm guessing, but because... I'm just based on what we've seen in a hundred corporations, they're still running the meetings the old way. They're going to talk about it and then they're going to vote and they're going to say, well, look, everyone voted the same way. Yeah. That's because you structure the meeting incorrectly. They're going to ask binary questions. They're going to say things like, so we should launch the product next week. Right. And then they're going to complain because they didn't get any dissenting opinions. Well, that whole sentence was, uh, was a bad way to do it. It, 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 the, the way adding that and adding that right at the end is is designed to suppress different opinions. Does that make sense? We good here? It's it's coercion. Those are all small small coercions, and so we're actually coercing people over and over again. Every binary question is a micro coercion. Because I'm trying to force someone to take a binary position in a highly complex world uh, for something about the future. You're going to say, oh, did you go to the game last night? Okay, that can be binary. But we're going to say, should we launch the product? 
Yeah, the decision is binary, but the input's never binary. It's like, how, how confident are you in the product? Start the question with the word how, over and over and over again. So I, what I see is, here's a very here's a simple example of how this plays out. On, on a cross-country flight, lady stands up, falls over, she faints. She stands up too fast and she faints. The lights come on, all the flight attendants rush over. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, and she's sort of shaking. I'm fine. They put her in the seat next to me, which was empty, and she's sort of recovering. And pretty soon they all quiet down. They go back to their, and they turn the lights back off. And I say, how are you? Not a binary question. The problem with are you fine? Everyone says, yeah, of course I'm fine. I'm fine. I was on a bike ride. One of the guys in our, in our bike group crashed and he's lying on the ground. We stop and we look at him and he's like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, he had broken his pelvis. <laughs> he wasn't okay. Look, the problem isn't him saying he's okay. The problem is us saying, are you okay? That's the wrong question. It's how do you feel? Where does it hurt? And we are just conditioned in the wrong, we are programmed to speak the industrial age language. And then we blame our team and we say, well, where's your thinking? Because you're managing me like a cog in a machine. Every word you say is programmed to get me to go along with what you want me to do. So there's the craft of asking the right kind of question. And then there's the environment that gives me the safety to respond to it. It's the it's same not, thing. Like, the environment yeah. is created by a the question thing. Now you could, and it's when, when people make mistakes, which they always will, we say, what did we learn? It's always about learning. What did we learn? Everything has two dimensions. What did we do? What did we learn? What did we do? What did we learn? If, all, if your only dimension is what did we do, then you're going to have failures. What did we do? Well, we didn't quite do. We didn't quite get there. I have a goal for this year, which I'm very close to making, but I might not make it. Uh, I have a fitness goal at, at the end of the year. And so if that's all I'm focused on, it's going to feel like a failure. But if you say, well, oh, what did I do? What did I learn? Well, what did I learn? Well, I, you always learn something. Right. So it mitigates the sense of failure and we can get better. It's, a, it's about getting better. Yes, there's an interesting relationship i think between the the well especially i'm, I'm from the commercial space so i i don't know your space that you're talking about at all but that expectation of an end game that can be quite selfish for people i.e people that own private equity companies they've got an earnout or bosses that can get a certain bonus and it's not about running a kibbutz but you know balancing the human doing and the human being kind of thing and actually having a sense of social responsibility i'm, I'm not a big fan of the word corporate social responsibility but just social responsibility and asking people to come down to that um and again i'm not about get rid of the profits but I'm, I'm with you. Here's, a, here's what we see. It's, it's very clear. It, 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 if you're doing, quote, social responsibility out of a sense of charity, that's, that's to me, great. Have a charity. Just give the money away. That's corporate social responsibility to me. If you want to, yeah, run a charity, fine. Do that. But here's the thing. You're, the people in your company are number one. Your customer is not number one. You your job as a leader is to take care of the people in your company and the people in your company will take care of the customer. If your company, if you say customer is number one, 
then the people in your company, the doing the care and the feeding are number two. So we work with McDonald's and I'm in a McDonald's and franchise. I'm standing in the back and the shift manager, the, the team meets before the shift and shift manager is sort of barking at the people, blah, 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 only two pickles, blah, blah, blah. And don't forget what happened yesterday, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now go out there and serve hamburgers with a lot of empathy. I'm like, really, you know, screw you. Because if I don't get treated with empathy, how am I going to treat the customer with any kind of empathy? So the way, the path, look, you could get rich with a very short-term focus. A lot of people have done it. I think ultimately at the end of the, at the end of your life, it's a relatively hollow uh, approach to legacy. I think long-term, and we know guys uh, compare Costco, which was run by Jim Senegal. Costco is a big box store here in the United States, quiet, not a big brash guy. No one ever heard of them. And in 1980, if you had invested the same amount of money in Costco and GE, you would have way more. I, I don't know the number, a hundred times more money in Costco right now. But then we have Jack Welch, big and flashy, blah, 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 flip, and then crash. Yeah. And he had a certain genius for achievement, but not for leadership. Because as soon as he left, the thing fell apart. His his disciples were basically disasters wherever they went. And I, that's not, to me, leadership happens the day you leave. I'm fascinated by, you know, this idea of, you know, momentum isn't leadership, you know, and if the product or the market is, is allowing you to have momentum, that's not in itself great leadership. It's, uh, and a lot of people think that they are the cause of success when actually it's happening in spite of them. I see that a lot. <laughs> right. Well, we always, when good luck happens, we, that's, that's my talent. I made that happen. Exactly. Um, and I've been the beneficiary of, 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 of tremendous benefit. If I were a submarine, I could be the most famous ever submarine commander in Denmark, write a book in Danish and there's 5 million people who could read it. But so, so there's a lot of luck involved, but we should always remember that, that there was, there's luck involved, but, and when, but when you are lucky and you're ready, then you can, um, you can take, you can take advantage of it. But certainly for us leadership, the path to long-term success is through your people. It's through taking care of your people and creating a thinking team, creating a team which consistently makes good decisions. Organizations can tell you to the 10th of a penny what all the different pieces they're making, building a car, they can tell you what that screw costs. When you ask them, well, what did it cost to make the decision to build this, like something? Why did you use these kind of tires? Or why did you place the gas tank where you placed it? No idea. We have no idea what our decisions are costing us. So we always think in two dimensions. We have decision-making factory, and then we have the factory factory where we're making the whatever it is, the product that we're making, and then the decisions which improve the product. The job, this is leadership, hmm. the decision-making factory, because it's about thinking, it's about human interaction, it's designing in human interactions that activates and allows people to express their thinking in a, in, in a most effective way. This while you're in the organization, we, we call that achievement. You're a great achiever. You, you're, that's a great accomplishment. That's a great achievement. It's not great leadership 
until you leave. And then we see how the organization does. Yeah. So in your kind of space, high, high performance and people that actually cause problems but are high performers. And I think I see a lot of organizations that fall foul of they actually have a certain amount of incredible talent, but it's, you know, they, they, they're just Pareto's law kind of stuff in play. And when those people are, you know, good contributors, that's a beautiful thing. But when they're maybe malcontents or saboteurs or whatever it is, but they bring home the bacon, so to speak. And I just wonder your, not so much your tolerance, but your approach to people who are technically excellent and worth every penny, but at the same time cause massive issues. And I just wonder how, I mean, how you, how you face into those kind of uh, people. Okay, on a submarine, nothing happens. No one person is that valuable. I would get rid of them. You have to get rid of that person. It, they're, they're, we, we, we somehow get enamored in the, the same thing with what, why are we pay, paying CEOs 2,000 times the average? Uh, because they're so, you really think this person is so much better at making decisions. Well, again, that's a fundamentally flawed approach because that's not the CEO's job. The CEO's job is to create an organization. You got 20,000 people working in your company. Isn't their brain power worth something? Oh no, we're going to bank it all on the CEO making the right call. Well, how about there, there are hundreds and thousands of little decisions that happen all day long to the organization that add up to determine success or failure. Now, if, if you're fundamentally in the wrong business, then yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be a problem. But your organization will detect that. They'll notice it. Sales will start dropping off. It'll be harder for the salesman to sell the product. The, the people they're talking to are going to start talking about, well, you know, there's this other thing. Have you guys heard? And in, in the right organization, that gets filtered in, it gets responded to, and the organization reacts and, and changes to it. Yeah, you can't, I mean, I'm guessing I, I don't know. I get I, I, there. There may be. You know what? I, I'm going to just go out on a limb and say there is no such thing. We've seen. Uh, so during the financial crisis, there were some. Some hedge funds over here that got it exactly right. This is the 2008. They they saw the thing. They saw the implosion coming. They bet against the mortgage markets. They made billions of dollars. They, 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 they're on their own private islands or their own private yachts. And then, and, then, and then they don't repeat. And then everyone throws money at them. And then they underperform for the next 10 years. Just, so just because you made a great decision once. Now, you may say, that's all, all I need. Yeah, all I need is one good decision, make a billion dollars, I'm done. Fine. My family's set for generations. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think... I mean, I don't know. Uh, one of the exercises we do with with uh, CEOs sometimes is we have them say, "Right, you just got an email from God who said this is your last day at midnight tonight. You're you're gonna you're gonna die." And what do you what are you thinking about? Just just jot down your thoughts for the next twenty minutes. Most of them don't talk about money. They talk about the, they talk about people and there's a, there's an interesting little book, a nurse in Australia wrote five uh, wishes of the dying or something like that. And really, uh, so she's a hospice nurse and she's, 
is a chance to talk to people who are near death and the things they talk about. And they talk about, they don't talk about, oh, I wish I'd made more money. That is not one of the top, I'll just do a spoiler alert. It's not one of the top five. So I, you know, what's important in your life and you gotta, you gotta, I, I call it fast forward. You gotta take, take the, take the movie of your life and play it to the end. Imagine, or at least play it a year in the future or 10 years in the future. And like, well, what, what is it? What is, what is it about? What, what, what so are you're you trying to get people to move away from just being task focused to say, listen, jump to that point where actually you'll actually know what's really important to you and connect with that now. And actually, if that is a true thing, then start behaving like that now. Yeah. 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 I, I feel that. Yeah. Uh, another thing is I think we also, we view, we spend too much time, what I call behind our own eyeballs. Like my sense of the world is I'm looking out through my eyeballs and in me, whatever is, whatever I am is behind my eyeballs, looking at the world through my eyeballs. And I say, get out from behind your own eyeballs. And basically you want to be over here, put yourself over here, look back at yourself. In a meeting, imagine, okay, I'm sitting over there and I'm looking at me. What do I think? If this was on a live video, I, I often say, if this was a live video stream and the people that you care about were watching, would they be proud of you? Would they be going, oh, my God? <laughs> and very often having right. that third-party perspective, and if you think they'd be proud of you, well, you know, crack on. But if you, if you know in your heart they'd be embarrassed, then, you know, do something else, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. it's an interesting one. So in, in your time of developing and nurturing talent and bringing people forward, you know, I often, you know, I often say, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? But I've actually started to ask a different question, which is, what's the best bit of advice you've ever given? <laughs> which is a slightly different take on it and may make you think, but I'd love to know the answer if you've got one. Well, I guess the best piece of advice I've given is advice I've given to myself. Um, and and there's, there's a couple of things. Number one is only control, only control what you can control. Just control what you can control. And the only thing you control is yourself. And give up, give up trying to control everybody else. Just give it up. You can influence their behavior, but it comes by controlling your own behavior. So what we have instead of instead of leaders, I walk standard situation. I walk up to you. I say, hey, boss, here's a problem. What should I do? Well, uh, either they, the, my boss tells me or they say, well, what do you think uh, we should do? And um, I'm like, well, I don't know. You tell me. OK, we'll do this. So. And then I get lectured because I haven't taken enough initiative. And what they can do is they can not answer the question. They can say, even ask me, what do I think? Is that sometimes a too big of a bridge? You want to start with what do you see? Because what do you see is observation description, which is unemotional. Even what you think can be emo feel emotional because it can be judged, which is what, what you see does not feel that judgmental. As oh, I see four rooms, I see a wall, I see some lights. It's observation, it's that, that's where you start. They can't control themselves. 
they can't help but speak up or be the way they are. And so they're, then they push it on other people. Oh, you're empowered, but I refuse to shut up. That's the classic. Mm-hmm. And if your happiness is dependent upon the behavior of other people, you're screwed. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. I had this conversation I, with my, my mom. She was upset. My kids are all in their 30s now, but you know, earlier um, in their 20s, well, they didn't send me, they didn't send a thank you note. And I'm like, well, don't send them a present next year. <laughs> no, 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 make them send me a thank you note. Well, you, are, are you, I'm really upset they didn't send a thank you. Well, you, that's your problem. Why, why is their action have any controlling your happiness? So now you're, you're, in a, you're in a game. You can't win because now you have to control other people in order to ch- get them to do stuff that you think is going to make you happy. It's a loser's game. Mm. So stop trying to control other people. And I guess that's my big piece of advice. I find. Which is interesting when you are inverted commas in control and that's exactly, an exactly. interesting conversation for people i guess yeah i say people the the team's behaviors need to be coordinated highly coordinated but mm. not it, when you really have it going right people's behaviors are coordinated but they're not controlled mm. so it, it, the picture is a team where everyone is doing things announcing them and synchronizing in in a in this beautiful ballet of, but there's a lot of communication. People say, I'm doing this. I'm about to do this, doing this on the submarine. It might be flooding on torpedo tube, lining up torpedo, initializing gyros, raising the periscope, aligning the sonar. And then and people are announcing this. That's what it would sound on, on the Santa Fe. And I could say, because they were announcing it, I, I could always stop it. I say, stop, don't do that. Hold on for a second. I need this other thing to happen first. But what normally what we see is in the movies is one person, the captain saying, initialize sonar, line up the torpedo. And so we're controlling things, which A, makes things slower, B, steals people's ownership and doesn't get, and it it doesn't distribute the thinking. We've, we've, we've uh, created one singularity of thinking. And if that's, thinker makes a wrong decision we're all dead i love that phrase actually uh, distributed think distributed thinking i think that's a it's a it's an easy thing to say but it's a, there's a huge amount of stuff to unpack in there which we haven't got time for now but yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's a that's a massive thing about permission safety to do so being trained enough well enough to do it oh, there's a lot in there yeah exactly yeah Right. And it's not just, oh, I have an opinion on something I don't know anything about. That's not thinking. That's just an opinion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank, thank you for it. But, uh, right. Yeah. This is actually a nuclear reactor. You actually need to know something. So, <laughs> or an airplane or surgery or internet you know, security. What, what you're or talking whatever. about is fascinating because I, I, my little boy had a, a, an asthma attack uh, a couple of years ago and mm. the ambulance came incredibly quickly and of course they told me to get out of the way you know because i can i just yeah you know as in your opinion sir is right, another, right. you know but if you just step to the side and right. uh, and of course what i did see was them calling off you know this is what I'm, I'm doing the check oh well i'll get the pump and they they i don't have to look at you but i'm hearing and so they didn't have to watch each other 
and he yeah. was a ballet. And then when they basically saved his life and you're stood there going, holy schmoly, because it's their day job, but to you, you've just seen this. A miracle. You know, a miracle. We got in the ambulance and we were going to the, the hospital and my little boy was fine. And then they did a debrief and they went, um, right, anything we should think about. Not anything we did wrong, not anything we did right. So then we're going to just give each other a group hug, but anything we should think about. And they did this for a bit and I turned around and said, can I just ask why you did that? And they go, and not wait till the end of a shift or they go, yeah, because we might have another one in a minute. And I thought, yeah, of course, of course. It might happen again in literally five minutes. And if it does, anything we should have thought about. And I thought, oh, right. this is this is what... I mean, there's obviously a hierarchy. There was a supervisor. You could tell there was a hierarchy, but it wasn't in play. And that was, I imagine, what we're talking about here. That's exactly right. Yeah, What you described is exactly what, what I think the highest performing teams, the way they operate. The hierarchy comes in play two months earlier when we said, okay, when we arrive on scene, who's going to do what and how are we going to interact? And I've gone through training videos, American Heart Association training videos of how teams should interact to heart attacks, where the doctor is directing every action. And this is fundamentally, in my mind, a flaw. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's fragile. It's flawed because of two reasons. Number one, it's very fragile. We, th- we think that being in control makes it more safe and reliable, but it doesn't. It, 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 yeah. 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 And if the doctor forgets something, it's going to be, it's going to make it harder for the team. And these are all probabilities. So it's going to be harder for someone on the team to speak up. And secondly, it's not invoking everybody's thinking. We're as good as one person, but we have eight people on the team stupid i love it listen i'm going to respect time here david and um you know i often say i could you know i could keep going until you lost your patience so i'm going to keep it at the good side and just from my perspective just thank you so much for taking that time just to come on the episode and i'm just going to press stop now and uh, we'll have two seconds but thank you thank you so much for coming on cheers that's it so i hope you enjoyed the episode please share so others get to hear about us and subscribe so you keep up to date on new episodes also visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with me and find out more about executive coaching team effectiveness and changing culture oh and of course you can buy my book living brave leadership on amazon so on that note see you soon